This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew 12, verses 22 through 37. It can be found starting on page 817 in the Bible under your seat. Matthew 12:22 through37. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, "Can this be the son of David?" But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, "It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons." Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges." But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either, the tree, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. If you weren't awake, you are now. My name is Mike. I'm one of the elders here at Trinity. Good to be with you here this morning. It's been a few weeks since we've been in the book of Matthew. We just finished up what we were calling our Recalibrate series. If you missed one or two of those sermons or, or all of them, I highly encourage you to go back and listen through the whole series because there's a lot said that will be relevant for us as we continue on in 2019. In fact, for, for those of you who did not pick up uh, the at-a-glance calendar that Kristen just mentioned, on the bottom of that calendar is captured all the guiding principles that got rolled out through that series. So I encourage you to take one of those home and check that out. There will be more info on that forthcoming, but for now we've got kind of the, the major headings under worship, community, and mission. I also just want to thank J.P. Everett and Steve for, for preaching during the series. I was just thinking... Sunday after Sunday, how much God has blessed this church with just killer preachers, right? Like, so I just want to appreciate them. They were faithful to preach God's word. Yeah. So before we dive in, let, let's go ahead and pray. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for all that you're doing at Trinity Community Church, and we pray that you would continue to 
um, open our eyes to see where you are working so that we can participate. I also ask, Lord, as we um, tackle a really sobering text today, that you would, um, I just pray for myself, I, I pray that you would empower my words, make me careful, that you would soften all of our hearts to, to recognize um, this really clear message, that if we are not sided with you, we are sided against you by default. So I, I pray that we would all be tender to that message this morning. We love you, Lord. We pray that it would be your spirit that addresses us this morning through your word. Amen. So as a recap, we've been in the book of Matthew. Today we, we start another sort of sub-series in Matthew. We're calling it the Upside-Down Kingdom. And we've gotten to the section where Matthew starts to kind of show some, of, some, some different folks' reactions to Jesus. We're going to get to see this more and more and more. He's going to be cueing into how different groups of people are reacting to Jesus. And so obviously some of them are going to be all for Jesus. You have the, the, the 12 disciples who are closest to him. You have sort of the larger body of disciples that follow him. Some are still a little bit ambivalent, right? Some of the crowds. And then finally, the group that we encounter today are very much against him. And we're talking about the Pharisees. The Pharisees had a couple reasons not to like Jesus. So for one thing, they occupied a, pre- a pretty prominent place in society. They had a reputation for being deeply spiritual people. Like, if you wanted, like, if I were to ask you, if you were in first century Judea, and I were to ask you, show me the most, just a moral exemplar of a person, you would point me to a Pharisee. If I asked you to point me to the good people in town, you would point me to the Pharisees. And when Jesus came along, there was, there was suddenly this competitor, right? The Pharisees, I think, really liked having that reputation. So Jesus comes along, and there's this competitor for popularity. But I think there's a lot more going on here as well. So the Pharisees, they, they had put in place this special set of laws. Like, if you imagine the actual laws of the Old Testament, it's kind of like a core. It was like the Pharisees had made a fence around that. They wanted to make extra sure that the people of God would not break the core. They wouldn't break the laws in the Bible, right? So here's the idea. We're going to make a fence around those laws. And if you keep the fence, then you're definitely not going to get anywhere near the real laws, right? Now, that sounds crazy, but here's why they did it. There's more and more evidence that the Pharisees thought that if, if God's people could only purify themselves, then God's kingdom would come. If God's people could only get their act together, God would bring his kingdom. Because obviously the exile is over, but there's a way in which we're not truly home yet. So if God's people could just purify, the kingdom would come. So they, they, they saw themselves as looking for the kingdom, as advocating for the kingdom, pushing people to do what needed to be done to bring the kingdom. At least that's, that's the story they told themselves. And so you have to imagine their frustration when this rabbi from the backwaters shows up. And, and he begins to break the fence left and right. And he actually says that he's inaugurating God's kingdom, that he's bringing it. And, and, and Israel has not purified yet, right? 
But he shows up, and he goes to the sinners and the tax collectors, prostitutes, the unclean. And he says, this is what it looks like when the kingdom of God shows up. So you can imagine their frustration with Jesus. Now, if Jesus had just shown up claiming this stuff, that would be less threatening, right? In fact, there had been others who had shown up, you know, activist types, and they got killed by the Romans, right? And, and they didn't make a, a huge dent in the Jewish community either. But Jesus shows up, and there's something about his ministry that makes his claims really hard to deny. Namely, this guy seems to have legit supernatural power, right? Jesus shows up, and diseases are coming out of people, right? So he's not only making claims that the kingdom is coming, he's demonstrating what the kingdom looks like left and right. So you can imagine the Pharisees' frustration. Jesus is doing things that only Messiah is said to do. So from the perspective of the Pharisees, this is obscene. Like, no one can deny the source of Jesus' power is supernatural. No one can deny that. The guy is doing stuff that you couldn't do. I mean, leprosy, so like visible stuff, is, is being reversed. So it's definitely supernatural. But here's where the Pharisees' mind goes. All right, it's definitely supernatural. But there's more than one supernatural source. So here at this moment, Jesus casts out a demon. And the Pharisees think, okay, sure, it's supernatural, but it's coming from the dark side. Jesus is being empowered by dark supernatural entities. He's not representing Yahweh. He's representing the devil. Or Beelzebul is how they refer to the devil. So, they, they, in other words, they're saying this isn't how God's spirit operates. If this is truly God's spirit, it would be on our side. So here in today's passage, we, 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 we get to, to sit in on this confrontation between the Pharisees and Jesus. And it's mainly a monologue on the part of Jesus. And I want to approach things a little differently today. So Jesus' monologue is broken up into kind of three parts. He has a counter-argument against the Pharisees' explanation. He has his explanation and then an implication. So counter-argument, explanation, and implication. And first, Jesus' counter-argument. All explanations of Jesus' power fail aside from his own. Let's reread verses 22 to 27. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and Jesus healed him. So that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? When the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. So how then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they'll be your judges. So Jesus casts out this demon, and the reaction of the crowd is, could this be the son of David? What they're asking there is, could this be Messiah? This figure prophesied across the whole Old Testament that would bring in God's 
kingdom. They're, they're drawing this connection that Jesus' ministry is so unique that they're led to believe, man, I think this is it. I think this is it. And so the Pharisees, they, they need to nip this in the bud, right? So they accuse Jesus of operating through the power of Satan. So Jesus responds, what does he, what does he say? He, he points out that it would be a really, really weird strategy on the part of Satan to, to attack himself, right? So a little background here. You know, we live in a highly rationalist, secularist culture. And what that means is we sort of just, from the get-go, we rule out any sort of supernatural explanations. And sometimes that's actually an okay practice, you know. But, but it's not what Christians believe ultimately explains reality. We believe that, there, I recently heard this phrase and I thought it was great, that there is an octave to reality that goes beyond what you can sense and feel. That there's a part of reality that is occupied by the spiritual. And, and not all of those spirits are benign. We believe that, that there is a contingent of spirits that have ordered themselves against the Creator, that they hate Him and they hate you. And so when Jesus is casting out demons, he, He's casting out the members of this spiritual contingent of rebels against the Creator. He's removing their power. He's pushing back the darkness. And so he just points out, like, hey, man, it'd be really, really weird for a coach to tell a lineman to tackle his own quarterback. Right? Why would Satan do that? That's stupid. Right? It's really dumb. It would be a terrible strategy. So the idea itself is implausible. But then Jesus brings up something even more troublesome. He's not the only one doing exorcisms. He's not the only one doing exorcisms. We actually have accounts of, of people outside of Jesus practicing exorcism. I mean, there were groups of Jewish teachers and leaders, Pharisees among them, who, who sort of trained in exorcism and they would try to do it. There's not a lot of evidence that they were often successful. That's part of what made Jesus' ministry so unique is it seemed like he could do it with ease. But there were exorcists in the first century. And so among those exorcists are Pharisees. That's what Jesus refers to as the sons, the sons of the Pharisees. That's just a phrase that he's using to say, like, the exorcists that go out from your own number, right? So he's not talking about literal, like, these are your kids. He's talking about the exorcists that went out from your own number, right? So here's the problem. Other guys are doing exorcisms, and you better believe that when one of those sons of the Pharisees perform a successful exorcism— the Pharisees aren't attributing that to Satan. And so Jesus brings up this little inconvenient truth. Like, hey, what's different here? He's holding them accountable to their own words. That when they approved of the sons, they should also approve of him. It's interesting, the, the argument that the Pharisees mount here about Jesus' power coming from Satan actually gained a little bit of traction beyond the writings of the New Testament. That's what, what's really, really curious. When you look at the earliest writings, I'm talking, again, outside the New Testament, the earliest writings talking about Jesus, they actually don't deny his miracles. His enemies 
don't deny his miracles. So, so we have documents from Josephus, which I guess is a little later date, but even earlier from the Jewish Talmud, talking about Rabbi Ben Stada, who most scholars agree is, is Christ. Hmm? Spilled on myself. But most scholars agree that Ben Stada is Jesus. And it's interesting, it doesn't deny that he works miracles. All the earliest accounts actually say that Jesus had a reputation as a miracle worker. They just attribute it to Satan. They just say, okay, okay, yeah, no, that dude worked miracles. There's no other explanation for the sort of enormous reach that he had through his ministry. There's, even not, there's not even really an explanation for why he would be crucified in front of such a large crowd unless something he was doing would draw a crowd. Jesus' own enemies believed that he worked miracles. They just didn't want to say that it came from Yahweh. And today, there, there, there's a similar move that, that's pretty common. It's, you know, I'm leaving out for today those who think the Gospels are entirely fictitious. That's for another day. But it's not uncommon for a lot of people to offer up alternative explanations for Jesus' power. More and more people are recognizing that, like, hey, there's some serious historical data that points to something spooky happening in the life of Christ. At the very least, he had a reputation as a miracle worker. And so how did that reputation develop, right? There's lots of attempts at explaining it. A brief search online produced uh, a few of these for me. So his power is explained by the fact that he had a heightened God consciousness, and so he could sort of morph like, like, incorporate people into that God consciousness, and so they would transcend physical limitations. Um, it's also been explained by hypnosis or the power of suggestion, by Reiki or other kinds of energy healing, by Jesus having sort of realized his oneness with all things, which sort of makes him capable of changing reality around him. So all of these are different explanations that are coming from either full-on naturalism or for, from Eastern mysticism or or whatever, different ways of explaining Jesus' power. And the right way to do this would be to take them one by one. I don't have time to do that, but that would be the only respectful, truly respectful way to, to deal with each of those objections. But I'll say this just briefly. It strikes me as kind of strange. Like, all these explanations admit one thing. Jesus is extraordinary. All of them say that Jesus has a level of knowledge that none of us have, that Jesus is extraordinary in a way that none of us are, that he is enlightened beyond the point of anybody that we have ever met, right? So all of, all of these explanations assume that. And yet what each of them also assumes is that the last explanation we should entertain is Jesus' explanation, right? Jesus is apparently enlightened enough to have incredible, unprecedented power, but not enlightened enough to know where it came from. It's amazing that it rarely occurs to people to take Jesus at his word. But that's what we're going to do. That's what Jesus is going to force the Pharisees to do. So Jesus, his, his counter-argument is that all explanations of his power fail aside from his own, and now his explanation, he says that his power comes from the Spirit of God. Verses 28 to 32. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has just come upon you. 
Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So by a little process of elimination, Jesus has brought the Pharisees to this place where the most plausible way of explaining his power is to say that it comes from God. And if that's true, then Jesus is bringing the kingdom of heaven. And if that's true, then the Pharisees just did something really, really serious. They just called the work of God's spirit the work of the devil. They have taken an active stance against God's kingdom. They have seen the goodness of what Jesus is doing and denied its source, and so they have literally taken up sides against Yahweh. They don't interpret it that way, but Jesus does. He is saying that they have taken a side against Yahweh. And it's interesting, I think for many people who, who might read this passage now, who are outside the community of the church, they sort of think, like, big deal, right? Like, what does it even matter whether I think Jesus is bringing God's kingdom or whether I side with him? The important thing is to do good, right? What does it matter if I'm sided with Jesus? I had a conversation in Hansa. There's a friend of mine that I, I get to talk to on occasion a kind, intelligent man, and he asked me what I was working on, so we talked about this passage, and that was kind of his reaction. Like, I just, I, I just want to do good. I don't understand how that, that makes me side against Jesus. He's, he's atheist, by the way. Like, he just said, I don't, I don't understand how that makes me side against Jesus if I, if I don't side with him, right? Like, why do I side against him then by default? And I think it's a legitimate question. And so in some ways, it reminds me, if I... If I want to explain it, so it reminds me of stuff that happened during sort of the, the rise of the 1960s civil rights movement, during the, the end of Jim Crow. When the civil rights movement was, was rolling along, there was this kind of widespread call for people to get involved, right, to take a side. So a big part of what made the civil rights movement of the 60s so unprecedented was the fact that many of the marches and the demonstrations were televised, for the first time ever. That was, that was possible on like a large scale. And so a whole lot of people were suddenly confronted with these images of young black teens getting hit with water hoses, right? Or, or beaten with billy clubs in the streets. And so those images did something. Like, for, for you to be confronted with that in your living room was pretty intense. And so lots and lots of people who had previously been doing nothing, maybe even like generally opinionless about Jim Crow, they suddenly got involved. And, and the conversion that took place there wasn't often a conversion from, like, total racist to, I think I'm going to march now, or give money or whatever. These were good people. Good people. Right? Church-going folks that didn't think that they really need to change much about their lives. They, they thought, why do I need to take a side? I do good. But suddenly, when they were confronted with these images— they realized that if they didn't do something, then they would be implicitly siding with the status quo. That by not doing something, 
they would be backing the status quo. They couldn't say, I don't have an opinion about King. I don't have an opinion about the marches or whatever. I'm a good person. That's enough. No, it mattered that they took a side. Because if they didn't join with the resistance, they were supporting the status quo. They took a side. The status quo of all culture, of all the world, the status quo of each of our hearts is to turn away from our creator. The status quo of the human race is to try to undo the good that he does, to try to withdraw worship from him, to try to isolate, to try to prioritize ourselves over others and certainly over him. Turning away from our creator in micro form and in macro form is the root of all moral darkness. And so Jesus is saying that if you are not reconciled to God through him, if you are not sided with his kingdom of grace, then you side with the status quo. Jesus is saying that his works are ushering in the counter-kingdom. His miracles are a demonstration of the fact that God is making all things new, restoring truth, goodness, and beauty to creation because he is the true good and beautiful God. So you can't say that you love goodness and resist the one from whom goodness comes. You can't say you love beauty and resist the one to whom all beauty points. You can't keep the kingdom and reject the king. There's lots of folk who lead moral lifestyles. My, my friend Ed Hanza is one of the kindest people I've ever met. He leads... A, a life that's like becoming of a Christian in a way that many Christians don't. You can be a caring and empathetic person, but unless you have sided with God, you're still resisting the very goodness you claim to love. And when you start thinking of it on that level, you realize that like when the chips are down, your morality may be great, but you aren't living consistently with it unless you have sided with the one that goodness comes from. And now this sounds completely narrow. A number of churches in the area are part of the Explore God movement. And the question this week was, is Christianity too narrow? We're not doing Explore God, but I'll address this question briefly because a lot of my friends are. So this sounds incredibly narrow, right? Like Jesus is saying my way or the highway. Wow, that is not tolerant, right? So is Christianity too narrow? Christianity is absolutely narrow, but narrowness is only a problem if it's arbitrary, right? Like, when I have a blazing ear infection, and I go to the doctor, and he says, you need an antibiotic, I don't say, that's a little narrow of you, doc. Could I get an antacid instead? I mean, like, it would, you know, I don't get to just make my own over-the-counter medical decisions on that level, right? It's not, but I can't accuse him of being narrow because he's not being arbitrary. I need an antibiotic to help me with my ear infection, right? Christianity's narrowness is only a problem if it's arbitrary. It's only a problem if it's arbitrary. Antibiotics aren't arbitrary, and neither is Jesus' urgency. He says if you're not gathering with him, you're scattering. And he calls this the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He says that any other sin might be forgiven. That the sins of Israel leading up to this point may be forgiven. But not this one. 
And a lot of different people have different interpretations of, of what this means. I think a lot of Christians are living in a lot of fear as a result of this verse, and they really don't need to. Like they're worried that they've unwittingly committed this sin or that maybe they committed it prior to believing in Jesus, and now even though they've converted, they're still not actually going to experience the new creation because they did this, or maybe they said something stupid about God, and now they're worried that, yeah, they're just beyond hope. And I think if we really come to understand what Jesus is talking about here, a lot of those fears will subside with one remaining. So I had to consult Steve Bryan on this one, our resident Matthew scholar, because I didn't want to speak rashly about something this urgent. So some folks talk about blaspheming the Holy Spirit as though that's basically just unbelief, right? Like if you don't believe in Jesus, then you've, that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So it's really just being an unbeliever, but that doesn't quite seem to gel with what Jesus is saying here. This seems like it's something that is possible for you to do during your lifetime. So it isn't just something that culminates on a deathbed. It's like something that you, that you can do, right? So I'm going to rule out unbelief as an explanation. Because in that case, it's no different than all the other sins that Jesus says you can be forgiven of. So I don't think that's it. I think Jesus seems to think this, this is really something folks can commit. What Jesus is referring to is what the Pharisees are presently doing. What Jesus is referring to is what they're presently doing. So what Steve pointed out to me is he said, look at the past chapters of the Pharisees. They're opposing Jesus, but Jesus never brings this up with them. So why does this come up now? Well, the big difference is that these Pharisees just got together and tried to plot his death. Right? That's the big difference between it. The Pharisees have chosen a side. They have hardened themselves. So the word that Steve used that I thought was just awesome was that the Pharisees' position against Jesus has calcified. It has calcified. They are hardened against him. If you're sitting here this morning, you have not committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But you might one day. You might one day. None of us are, are not in danger of one day hardening ourselves against God. And so if you're fearing that you've already committed it, you haven't committed it, right? But live in a way that keeps you from committing it later. See, the Pharisees are beyond forgiveness because they are knowingly rejecting the one from whom forgiveness comes. They have resolved themselves to reject him. So this is even different than when Peter denies Christ, right? Peter denies Christ because he's afraid of persecution, and he's reinstated. This is the culmination of a process. I don't think any of us have the right to judge when someone has committed this sin. My wife and I have friends that have gone from Christianity to atheism back to Christianity. They have not committed that sin because the Lord drew them back to repentance. So from a huge vantage point, the only way of proving that someone has hardened themselves in this way is by looking at the end of their lives, right? Does that hardening remain? So this is something that is between them and the Lord, but it's something that we're all in danger of. We see this in Hebrews and in 1 John, that it could be you one day. 
There's a practice to put in place that will guard you from committing it. It's a, it's a practice that will help you remain in Jesus, remain in the kingdom, side with Christ. I'm talking about repentance. So Jesus' explanation is that his power comes from the Spirit of God, and now we arrive at the implication, which is that if you're not sided with Jesus, you're sided against him, how do you side with him? You side with him by repenting. Let's reread verses 33 to 37. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So Jesus is issuing this warning to the Pharisees that you need to change your heart. That you are in danger of this tremendous, unforgivable sin. That as they harden themselves, they are arriving at the place of no return. So he's looking at their words, their words that they're using to side against Christ. And he says it's like the fruit of a tree. You know, if you're walking through an orchard and you notice a tree that year after year after year, just invariably, is producing shriveled, cruddy fruit, something's wrong with the tree, right? That's not just environmental. If all the other trees are fine, this one is, is bad. That's because the core of that tree needs to change. Something sort of integral to the tree is diseased. Something needs to be changed about its makeup. And so Jesus says that in the same way, the Pharisees' words show the condition of their hearts. The core of who they are is sick. They speak against Jesus because deep down they have turned against God. And before anything else, they must turn back to him again. Now you can imagine being an onlooker here and hearing Jesus say this and thinking, good grief, if the Pharisees don't have good hearts, then I must have the worst. I mean, how bad does mine have to be, right? The Pharisees are the good guys. And Jesus is saying this to them. So how do I change if the Pharisees are so close to being unforgivable, if they're that close to rejecting forgiveness itself, then what hope is there for me? How do I become good enough? And that's what's so important to understand here is that you can't be good enough. You can't be good enough. When you recognize that, you, you, you really come to accept that you can never measure up to the full stature of what God made you to be. And at that moment, you are closer than you've ever been to the truth. A changed heart begins when we accept our desperate need for grace. A changed heart begins when we accept our desperate need for grace. It begins when we reject the kingdoms of this world, when we reject our idols because they weren't helping us anyways, and we put our hope in the kingdom that Jesus ushered in through his blood. Hearts that side with, with idolatry, that side against God, they may produce moral lives, but in God's eyes, all that fruit is meaningless. It's rotten. The Pharisees had moral lives. They had fruit, but it was rotten. Jesus is saying that the core needs to change. We have to turn to him. 
And you see that that's not works righteousness. I'm not talking about, like, you need to be this tall to ride the ride of holiness, right? Like, you need to achieve this much, and then now you're in. That's not what repentance is, right? Repentance is acknowledging that there's a whole lot to reject. Repentance is, is acknowledging that this bar is way, way, way too high than I can ever reach, but it's also the bar I want. That it's also good. And that Jesus has not only promised to save me from the penalty of sin, but to save me from its power and its presence. That by his grace, I will look like that one day. In the new creation, that I will experience it in part now. All by grace. The unpopular part of this text is that judgment is coming, and it is. Because God is just. He couldn't be just and allow the evil of this world to go unaddressed. So we will all be held accountable. We'll all be judged. But for those of us who have pled with God for mercy, we will invariably be forgiven. Our judgment will not be on the basis of our works, but on the works of Jesus. Because deep down, I think all of us know we do not want to be judged by our behavior. God doesn't make us his because our works are acceptable. He accepts our works because he has made us his. Jesus came to disable the power of the devil to free us from the spiritual forces that ruled this world. The enemy is dethroned and mortally wounded. The rule of Christ has begun, and he is marshalling together a new people, gathered together not by moral achievement, but by the grace of God, a people who are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to God. Jesus used this analogy of the strong man being bound, that Jesus has, he's, picturing his ministry as him breaking into the house of a very strong man, namely the enemy himself, and that Jesus is binding him. That with every exorcism, is, it's Jesus showing that I am stronger than the strong man. That he is binding the strong man through his ministry so that he can plunder his house. Rad, right? This stuff is awesome. Like, so Jesus is plundering the strong man. And by that, he means that he's taking away everything the strong man once owned. He is taking back the rule of this world. The devil has ruled it, but he's getting plundered. And I was even thinking about this just as I was thinking about the text. I was thinking about this in like a, sort of like a poetic reading in some ways, where like each of us prior to Jesus are owned that we are under the rule of sin, we are under the rule of the strong man, and that as we repent daily, as we trust in Jesus daily, as our lives actually change, it's like we are participating in the plundering. As though we are taking, like, we are particip- like cooperating with God as he takes our very lives away from the strong man and puts it into the hands of Christ. Repentance is joining with Jesus' act of plunder. Leave nothing to the strong man. Leave nothing to him. 
Jesus has assumed his throne and begun the final act of the human drama. In the words of Abraham Kuyper, by the time this thing is done, we will see that there is not a square inch of this cosmos over which Jesus doesn't shout, Mine. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have bound the strong man. That sin is is great, but your grace is stronger. That Satan is strong, but you are stronger. That the, the powers of the world, the flesh, and the devil are intimidating, but you are unbeatable. So I pray, Lord, that you would strike us with a vision of your grace and forgiveness. We are so not good enough. But you are. And you invite us into a life that isn't just looking forward to to the day where, where sin is beaten, even though we are absolutely looking forward to that. That is the source of all our hope. But we know that even now, you have invited us to be disciples to learn the way of the Lord to apprentice ourselves to you to side with Jesus because we know that if we are not sided with you we're sided against you I pray Lord that you would turn our hearts to you more and more every day whether, whether we believe now, if we believe now, I pray that you would turn us even more toward yourself. That you would conform us to the image of Christ. And if anyone is here who does not believe, I pray that they would continue to seek, continue to explore. That they would be ready to be surprised. And you know, I, I also pray, Lord, that you would draw them to yourself uncomfortable that might be for them to hear right now. (laughs) We love you, Lord. We thank you for the promise of the kingdom, which is ultimately that we get the king. We get to be in the presence of the king.